0: Soon afterwards, Jesus went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a considerable crowd from the town was with her, and when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bier, and the bearers stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise and the dead man sat up and began to speak and jesus gave him to his mother fear seized them all and they glorified god saying a great prophet has arisen among us and god has visited his people and this report about him spread through the whole of judea and the surrounding country this is god's word Many decades ago, I uh, saw the evolution of a fashionable trend involving embroidered sweaters. As fashions do, this one came and it went very quickly, never to be seen again, plummeting to the bottom of people's laundry and bins that they, and storage containers that they never unpack. Until the 80s, when a few sitcoms uh, began featuring these embroidered sweaters on famous comedians. Then people, all of a sudden, began bringing their old sweaters out of their storage bin for ironic purposes and reasons. Something like, oh, I can't believe my dad wore this, or I can't believe my my grandparents wore this. This is so funny, right? All of a sudden, the ugly Christmas sweater tradition was born. Fast forward to 2018, it's no longer ironic, but people look forward to this tradition with great endearment. No longer is it to poke fun at someone that came before us, but we actually love the things that we wear. I've seen some of your closets. Multiple ugly sweaters. Taking up real estate, waiting for the moment where you can break it out. And it's not enough that we use those retro fitted uh, sweaters from the 70s or 80s. Now we must add more to them because we love it so much. I've seen ugly Christmas sweaters with 3D reindeer coming straight out the chest. I've seen ugly Christmas sweaters with actual electric Christmas lights embroidered into the sweater and they blink. No longer is this an ironic thing, but it's actually something we have grown to love again. And it's endeared us. Pretty soon in the month of December, can't get there soon enough, there will be ugly Christmas sweater parties at people's homes, at people's workplaces, at the beach, all over the place. People will roll into this place, I've seen it, to church with an ugly sweater on. Ugly Christmas sweater. What used to be ironic, what used to be a fashion faux pas is now actually endearing. And if you don't have an ugly Christmas sweater, come this December, rest assured, fast fashion has got your back. You can go to H&M and find right there a perfectly crafted, brand new, ugly Christmas sweater. Fully made with a nice balance between hip and nostalgia. Hipstalgia. What I find to be the true phenomenon Of the ugly Christmas sweater tradition is that people who are able to step into uh, are are now able to step into something that they were formerly uncomfortable with. People are able to step into something that they used to be uncomfortable with. The title of my sermon today is called Stepping Into the Uncomfortable. And this is what I think Jesus is inviting us to do embracing something we used to be formerly uncomfortable. Repelled by. Sometimes life lends you a lot of opportunities. Sometimes things are good. You ever heard that saying, when life hands you lemons, make lemonade? Or what it's supposed to express to us is, when life hands you an opportunity, make the most of the opportunity. How many of you in this room would add to that statement? You would say, that is more times than not untrue. Where's the saying that says, when life hands you rocks? right? What about when life throws rocks at you? Other people are getting lemons. They're making lemonade. What about when life throws rocks at you? Some of us feel like life has been throwing rocks at us. In verses 11 through 13, we're looking at a woman who's been pelted by rocks, figuratively speaking, from life. We just got done looking at a centurion whose servant was healed. He has lived an affluent and privileged life. He's like on the other end of this whole journey. He's a centurion with a lot of influence and power. He's got a lot of friends. Even his supposed enemies that he's oppressing are starting to warm up to him. He's got a lot of things and stuff and people and influence. On the tail end of that story, we find a widow who's got virtually nothing. Look at verse 11 through 13 again. It says, after he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him, he drew near to the the gate of the town, and behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. Now, you got the the story right there, right? She just lost her son. She already lost her husband. Sometimes life throws rocks at you. And this would be a terrible situation in any age. It would be terrible today. It's far more exacerbated in the first century because in the first century, women didn't have very many rights. They didn't have very many rights and their entire sense of well-being and security was wrapped up in their man. So you would marry a husband, he would bring you income, he would protect you from the things out there, and you would live a happy life unless he died. If your husband died, or if your husband divorced you, or if your husband left you, it was very difficult to remarry because you had already been married. It would take a very nice person who was thinking selflessly, not about himself, but about the greater good, like Boaz in the book of Ruth. That's what that book is all about, a nice person who's like God. But that was very rare. In most cases, you would be a widow for the rest of your life. Now, if you had somebody in your family, perhaps a male son he could take care of you, and you wouldn't starve. But if your male son died, and your husband died, and you were a widow, that was a death sentence. There was no way for you to support yourself. You couldn't get a job, you couldn't do some of the things that were allotted to men in that day. Your only hope, if you had no other male family figures in your life in the first century, was to beg, maybe even suffer prostitution. This was the lot of a widow in the first century. So when we're reading this text, we're not just reading about a woman who lost her loved ones. That would be terrible enough. We're reading about a woman who lost all of her family and is about to die because there's no hope for her. To make matters worse, it was customary for the widow to lead the procession of her funeral through the streets as if she needed any more attention. And because it was also Jewish custom that you had to get that funeral done within a day, this is probably fresh, probably within those 24 hours that she lost her son. She lost her son, she already lost her husband, and who knows, maybe as she's walking through the streets, as all of the city is following her, and and keep this in mind, it's not like they're her best friends, we have no promise here that they're going to be in her living room the next day taking care of her. What's going through her mind? Maybe what's going through her mind is life threw a bunch of rocks at me. Maybe you can relate with that. This weekend, another fire swept through Goleta, as most of you are probably aware, torching houses and evacuating many people. Again, it was less than a year ago that we encountered one of the biggest fires in California's history. A fire that torched thousands of structures, left many people without homes, ruined businesses. This biggest fire in the history of California was on the tail end of one of the biggest droughts in California's history. Those two combined, creating one of the biggest mudslides, or more accurately put, one of the biggest mud and debris avalanches that California has ever seen. It's taken a few months, but Santa Barbara has stepped up out of the mud, rebuilt, started partying and barbecuing again. Hotels have opened, and 805 has been strong. And yet, even as we're beginning to recalibrate ourselves, another fire sweeps through Goleta just to remind us that it's there. Life is cruel sometimes sometimes you want lemons and life pelts you with rocks and what do we need when we're getting pelted by life's rocks some of us we need we need somebody to fix things to step in and stop the fires calm the wind help us in our unemployment erase the social injustice fix our broken hearts mend our broken relationships Others, we don't need solutions. We just want somebody to step into our junk and embrace us and tell us that we're not alone. You know what I love about this passage? Jesus does both in a single sentence. Look at verse 13. When the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said, do not weep. I, wanna, I want us to focus for a second on the word compassion because that's what this entire sermon is about. It's about Compassion. Compassion comes from the word meaning to suffer with. It means to step into somebody else's suffering, to step into somebody else's experience, or if I could put it this way, to leave our comfort zone in order to enter into the discomfort of the other person, to put on the ugly sweatshirt that we used to find repelling. Compassion. It's stepping into the uncomfortable even if the uncomfortable has nothing to do with us. Jesus was on his way. Where was he going? I don't know, but it was probably going to be awesome. He was on his way to Nain. On his way to Nain, outside of the city gates, he sees a funeral procession, he sees the woman, and instantly, he feels compassion. This is what compassion will do to you. It will create detours in your life. Compassion creates detours. And notice that this story, even though it's incredible, it's incredible. Miracle story is not even really, it's not much about the son. The son who died and will be raised by Jesus. Uh, he'll reap the benefits of the story, but the story doesn't really emphasize the sun. Who does it emphasize? Well, let me read a few of these lines starting in verse 12. 12 and a half. And sh- As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her, and when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her, and said to her, do not weep. Who's the story about? It's about the widow. Jesus loves widows. Jesus loves people who have been pelted by the rocks of life. And Jesus is on his way to something probably pretty awesome. And compassion creates for him a detour. He sees the woman. I also love that this is the first time in Luke, I'm pretty certain that the narrator, Luke, uses the word Lord to identify Jesus. Now, Lord shows up all throughout Luke. It's spoken of of the Father. Other people speak about Jesus as Lord. Luke quotes them. But apart from quoting other people, apart from talking about the Father, this is the one part, this is the first part of the, of the Gospel of Luke where Jesus, where Jesus himself is identified as Lord by Luke. Why is he doing that? Could it be that he's trying to give us a full picture of what the Lord of the universe looks like? We've already seen stuff, we've already seen truth telling and teaching. We've already seen miraculous displays of power. All of those things are what the Lord of the kingdom of God does on earth. But now, with this little vignette of compassion, Luke wraps it up and says, this is the full picture. God is compassionate, and his kingdom is compassionate. We see this theme all throughout the scriptures. Look at the Psalms, Psalm 103, verse 4, who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion. That's your God. Psalm 116, the Lord is gracious and righteous. Our God is full of compassion. Psalm 145, verse 9, the Lord is good to all. He has compassion on all he has made. Lamentations 322, one of the most depressing books in the Bible, still says this, because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. For his compassions never fail. This is our Father. Jesus would come in on the scene exemplifying that. Look at Matthew chapter 9, verse 36. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them. That Greek word for compassion speaks about the bowels. The, 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 the ancients used to think that your se- the seed of feeling was in your stomach, and so they created a word for it compassion, feeling deeply in your gut. For somebody else's poor experience. When he saw the crowds, he felt deep in his gut for the less fortunate. Because they were harassed and helpless like a sheep without a shepherd. I'll keep going. Matthew 15. Then Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion on that crowd over there. Because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And I am unwilling to send them away hungry. Matthew 20 verse 34. Jesus had compassion on them and touched their eyes. Immediately they received their sight and followed him. Mark chapter 6 verse 34, when he went ashore he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Luke chapter 15 verse 20, when he, uh, and he arose and came to his father. This is the prodigal son. Jesus is telling a parable about what the father is like. And he arose and came to his father and while he was still a long way off, the father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. The Father is a compassionate God. And Hebrews tells us that the Son is a visual representation, an exact imprint of the Father's nature. So you want to know what God is like? Just look at Jesus. If what you see in the Bible of Jesus is this clear, you know that that's what the Father is like. Jesus was compassionate to the lowly. He was compassionate to the least fortunate. He was compassionate to the widow. He would be on a journey, on a mission to go somewhere else, and compassion would offer him a detour. And he would see a widow, and he would stop what he was doing, and he would feel it deep within his gut. If Jesus is like that, the Father is like that too. But if compassion is so good, why is it so hard to do it? Why don't we see it very often? No, we do see it. We see it when there's natural disasters. When the Thomas fire hit, we saw a lot of compassion. When someone is deeply suffering, we might see spurts of compassion. But why do we not see normal rhythms of compassion all the time everywhere as a normal mode of operation? Only when there's giant crises. Remember, I'm speaking about leaving our comfort zone and entering into the discomfort of others. Why, if compassion is so good, why don't we see too much of it today? Well, perhaps we can find an answer in verse 14 through 15. It says, then Jesus came up after seeing the woman, and he touched the beer, and the bearers stood still. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. That's awesome. I want you to focus on that first sentence with me. And he came up and touched the beer. was beer with an eye, okay? He didn't grab a beverage here. The beer was the framework of the casket. So Jesus walked up and he touched the casket and stopped the, the pallbearers. It was against Jewish law to touch dead bodies. It would render the person ceremonial unclean. You never touched a casket, never. Jesus touches a casket. Why? Here's, here's what makes it even more interesting is Jesus did not have to touch the casket to heal the guy. At this point, Luke chapter 7, we've, we've read a lot of things. We've seen Jesus heal a lot of people. Cast out demons, raise up, uh, raise up mother-in-laws, heal the sick, heal servants, He's done some of these things with a single word, never had to touch them. In other cases, like with the centurion, he didn't even have to be in the building. The centurion knew that. He said, you don't even have to come into my house. I'm unworthy of you. But if you say the word, my my servant will be healed. In other cases, it doesn't even seem like he says anything. Jesus doesn't need to touch the casket. Why would he touch the casket, rendering a Jewish person ceremonially unclean if he didn't have to do it in order to do what he set out to do? I think that it wasn't to touch the casket to heal the son. He was touching the casket to heal the mother. All it would have taken to heal that son, as we will see, is the life-giving power of God flowing out of Jesus into that casket. And the very thing that would have rendered a normal person ceremonially unclean gets reversed. The curse is reversed and life-giving power flows into the casket of death. This is what Jesus does. He sends life into dead places. But why did he need to touch the casket? It wasn't to heal him. It was to heal her. It was to give her a visual and in so doing saying, hey, I'm here with you. My heart breaks for you. I feel what you're feeling. It was to touch the dirtiness and the nastiness and the suffering of death itself. He touches the casket. This is what Jesus does in the life of people. He sets out and he touches that which is dying in us. He would already do what what needed to be done for the son, but he did this to prove a point to the mother. I am with you, and I'm going to do something about it. And I'm not going to do something about it from afar. I'm going to step into your mess and do it right here with you. That's why compassion is difficult because you have to touch what is dying to you, what appears to be death and decay. You have to step into what's uncomfortable. Perhaps I can illustrate with a story of my own. I uh, had the best time this week celebrating Fourth of July. Went to a few friends' house, we got those little poppers for kids, but we got a box of them, and we just set them ablaze. Watched the fireworks shooting up over, uh, over East Beach over there from a hillside, eating chicken and salad to make me feel better about the chicken. And this is something I grew up with, a deep, profound love for 4th of July and everything that it stands for. My parents, uh, my dad uh, was a Marine Corvette, my sister was a Marine Corvette, my grandma was a nurse in the Navy during World War II, and those three taught me a profound appreciation for what I have and how it got to me. The freedom that I'm able to enjoy on a regular and daily basis, sometimes without even thinking about it. And so when we partied on Fourth of July, we did it well. I remember as a kid in my hometown of Watsonville, this is the only, the only town in its, in its county that allowed fireworks. Everywhere else it was illegal, it was a fire hazard. In Watsonville, you could buy them in every parking lot in the month of June. And we'd get boxes of them. I'm not talking about poppers, I'm talking about giant fireworks. And my street in those years would light up. People would be doing them in the front yard. They'd be lighting them up on the sidewalk, in the street. Cars would be swerving, trying to avoid accidents. It was also pretty gang-infested where I came from, so other things would be going off at the same time. But it was awesome. It was like this one point in the year where everybody stopped and celebrated together. and We recognized that we were free. Lived right next to a gas station, but Whatever. I love those days, and I still do. As I've grown older, I've made a few friends and have met people who do not have the same experience that I do. Friends in this church, in this community, in my childhood who have experienced significant obstacles to their well-being. Obstacles that I have never encountered and will never encounter. And I want you to think about this for a moment. It's very difficult to empathize with someone that's going through something that you have never gone through in your life. One of the first tendencies for a lot of people is to judge them. Well, I have not gone through that, so you must be wrong. I have not experienced that, so you must be lying. Or maybe you're doing it wrong. Or maybe you need to work harder. Or maybe you need to get out of here. Maybe you're ungrateful. Because people are encountering obstacles to their well-being that some of us have never experienced before. We don't understand it. And that is the first step of compassion and empathy. Seeking to understand what somebody else is going through. Can you imagine if I spoke that way to my wife? Say over the course of this weekend, and this did not happen, I'm making this up, I was surfing all week long, enjoying myself and my wife, let's say she was at home with the kids during the heat wave, uh, the air condition broke and she was slaving away, moving stuff, cleaning stuff, taking care of kids. I come home at the end of the day refreshed and rejuvenated to my wife, who's sitting there trying to juggle all of these things, uh, having a difficult time. And she looks at me and says, hey, I'm having a hard time here. Can you help me with the dishes? Can you imagine if I looked at my wife and I said, are you kidding me? Why don't you do the dishes yourself? Why don't you pull yourself up by the bootstraps? I've done dishes before. Why can't you do the dishes? You know what it is? I think you're just ungrateful. You just don't appreciate me. That's what it is. You're ungrateful. You don't appreciate me. You really hate me. You're asking me to do the dishes, you just hate me. And you don't, you, don't, you, don't, you don't appreciate your freedom. Why don't you move to the house next door and see how good it is over there and then maybe when you're done over there you'll appreciate how good you have it over here. I would never speak that way to my wife. Never. I've heard many Christians speak that way about people that they don't understand just within this last month. That is a lack of compassion. And I don't mean that as a guilt trip. I have often done that. But that lack of compassion, if we want it to be healed, has to begin with the recognition that it's missing. And compassion starts with seeing the other people, even if we don't understand what they're going through, and attempting to understand, even if we don't like it. Jesus did this. He did not need to touch the casket. He did not even need to stop for the widow, but he stops because compassion creates a detour. And he reaches out and he touches the casket and he communicates to this woman, not only am I going to raise your son from the dead, but I'm going to do it right here with you. The same Jesus who promised to renew all things doesn't just stop at fixing things, he also steps down into our mess and he wraps his arm around our shoulder and says, you are not alone. Compassion. But in order for him to do that, God often has to touch what is dying. And maybe it's hard for us to give compassion because we are maybe we're so repelled by what we see in others because we have closed off what is dead in us to God. But it's usually the person who has experienced forgiveness and compassion and love who tends to give it more freely than others. When we read this, this passage that we're, we're reading in front of us, we don't just see a story of a widow who gets saved. We don't just see the story of a widow whose son gets raised from the dead. We see a mirror of a greater story. The truth is the Bible is full of widows whose sons were raised from the dead. It's almost like God is trying to catch our attention with that. Elijah, invited to a widow's home, raised her son from the dead. Elisha, his protege, invited to a woman's home, raised her son from the dead. When they did that, one of them spoke and said to the uh, said to to, to, uh, to the man, "Now I know that you are a great prophet, and that you doing this means that God is here, and that you have brought the presence of God in the same way." The crowds gathered in this passage would say when Jesus did this, a great prophet has arisen among us. God has visited his people. In other words, they're seeing the parallel. But these aren't the only widow stories. After Jesus raises this boy from the dead, there will be another widow, Mary. And it's Jesus, the son, who will leave her a widow this time. The difference between this story and the ones that came before it is that Jesus volunteered to die. And in so doing, Jesus enters into the pain of the widow. He doesn't just fix it from afar. This time he enters into death. He enters into suffering. He enters into our human experience. John chapter 1 tells us that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. He draped himself with our skin and bones, becoming a human being. To suffer with us, but also to destroy the power of suffering and death. That is the devil. And in the pain of the widow, and in the pain of all of humanity, he dies, rises from the get, uh, from the dead, and radically changes the landscape of suffering. In what Miroslav Volf, the theologian, uh, calls Jesus surrendering and opening up space in himself for the other person, the enemy. Miroslav Wolf has an interesting story. When he was going to theologian school, uh, he was giving a presentation on a gospel about how Jesus calls his disciples to love one another and even to love their enemies. He got done with his presentation and offered this application, and so we too are to love our enemies, to which his professor said, Jurgen Moltmann replied, Even a Chetnik? Can you love even a Chetnik? A Chetnik is a Serbian fighter. And Miroslav Volf was a Croatian, born in Croatia. And this lecture was in the winter of 1993, during the war between Serbia and Croatia. And at that moment, Serbians were ransacking his native villages, plummeting them, looting them, and hoarding people into concentration camps. Can you love even them? To which Miroslav wolf thought about for a second and looked up at his professor and said, no, I cannot. But as a follower of Jesus, I think I should, I might be able to. Compassion is not yet another moral command that God lobs into your lap, knowing that you will find it impossible to achieve. Compassion is the fruit of the Holy Spirit that is injected into your soul so that you are able to walk into the patterns. Set before you by Jesus Christ. It is nothing short of Jesus Himself invading your life and soul and conforming you to His image. Jesus makes a way for us to both receive and give compassion. But before He does it, He has to step into our mess and put on what is uncomfortable the cross. before we can even think about other people that we don't understand, perhaps we should slowly open the door and the gate on the things in our own life that we barely understand. The dirt, the pain, the disappointment, the disillusionment, the sin, the blind spots, the anger, the rage, all of those things. And allow the great healer of souls to touch what is dying in us. This is the gospel. Not that you were compassionate towards widows, but that Jesus Christ was compassionate towards you. And the gospel, as one per- person put it, is that you are far worse than you ever dared imagine, but you're also more loved than you thought humanly possible. In the good news of Jesus Christ, we find the compassion that is needed to cure and to satiate our souls. And I dare to think what would happen if we were allowed to sit in that for a few moments. Perhaps the compassion that God has shown us when we least deserved it would spill out into the city of Santa Barbara to people that we would never find ourselves speaking to, never find ourselves helping, never find ourselves in agreement with. Only the King of Kings and Lord of Lords is capable of such transformation, and he is here, present with his church, promising to bless and to pour out his spirit on anyone that dares say, "I'll wear that ugly sweatshirt." I'll put it on. This is the invitation of the Apostle Paul in Colossians chapter three verse 12. "Put on compassion. It's a gift. It's a gift that sometimes stings, but one that you end up not ever wanting to take off once you've tasted enough of it. Maybe you're in this place where you need some compassion in your life. Maybe you've been kicked down, beat beat up, thrown around, bedraggled, haggard, and tired. There is more compassion waiting for you in the Father through Jesus Christ than you ever dared hope for. I invite you to find it at the foot of the cross, to lay your mess at the foot of the cross and to receive mercy and love and grace in time of need. I'm going to show some compassion on you and start singing because it's hot in here. Anybody hot or is it just me? I won't sing for very long, but let's sing like we're going to sing, right? Let's sing about the endless mercies of Jesus Christ that have been shown on us. And let's dare believe that he might cause us to be instruments of his compassion.